0: So, good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. And I think we've started more or less on time, so that's a good start. My name is Bella Kapoor, and I am a visiting fellow at the LSE Center for Women, Peace and Security. And I'm here essentially to chair this event and and move it forward. Um, I just want to check that we're all here for the same meeting, <laughs> just in case that you, you, you're, you've come by mistake. What we're here to do is to discuss from pillars to practice, pushing the boundaries of women, peace and security. And actually, we are the UK launch of the Oxford Handbook of Women, Peace and Security. The handbook is being launched in a number of places, but we're lucky enough today to be launching it here in the UK. Um, The most important thing, I think, for you to be aware of is that the handbook is launched online on the 10th of December, and it will be available in hard copy in January. And I think all of you, I hope, have received flyers, which please do take them with you, because they give you 30% off for, for you or, ideally, your institution to pick up. Um, As usual, we'd like you to silence your phones, and, um, of course, if you would like to tweet the event, that would be great, using the hashtag LSEWPS. I should let you know that the event is being recorded, and it will be uploaded onto the centre's website in the next few days, and I'll remind you of that later today. So, moving on to the more interesting stuff... Um, We have four speakers who are four of the many contributors of the Oxford Handbook with us this evening, and they've come from near and far. We have over here, we have Professor Jackie True, and Professor Jackie True is the co-editor of the handbook. And Professor True is Professor of Politics and International Relations and the Director of the Gender, Peace and Security Centre at Monash University in Australia. We have Doctor Tony Hastrup, who is a lecturer in international security and a deputy director of the Global Europe Centre at the University of Kent. We have Dr. Henry Mertinen, who is the head of gender and peace building with International Alert, many of whom you will already be familiar with. And over furthest away from me, we have Dr. Aisling Swain, who I think many of you will know from your enjoyment, I'm sure, of her classes last year here at the LSE, And Dr. Swain is Assistant Professor of Gender and Security at the Department of Gender Studies here at LSE, where she teaches primarily on the MSC on Women, Peace, and Security, which we initiated, as I think you know, last year. What we're going to do is have the speakers speak for about 10, 15 minutes. Um, They're mainly going to talk about the um, contents of the chapters that they have prepared for the um, Oxford Handbook, but obviously because they've got so much experience, I hope that they'll also talk about some other issues as they think best. Then what we'll do in about an hour, after having listened to them, is have our Q&A, and of course that's really up to you to really guide that and to probe and ask them all lots of difficult questions. That will run for about 20, 25 minutes, but, but don't be uh, afraid or don't be worried if you don't have time to ask your questions, because the speakers are going to be joining us for some drinks in a reception afterwards, so you can badger them a little bit more with your very difficult questions. I hope you will throw at them. Um, as chair of this um, of this event, I had been thinking of asking a question to kind of get us, get us going, And the question that struck me as being quite important um, that I wanted to pose to Professor True is taking into account that we have the 20th anniversary of Security Council Resolution 1325 coming up in two years. That will be October 2020. And taking into account the huge range of issues, challenges that I think the Oxford Handbook brings up, as well as the achievements to date, I was curious to hear your thoughts on what you thought that the UN Secretary-General should be prioritising on that anniversary. And in particular, having read some of the chapters now in the report, I wanted to bring out what you have described as two of the most important WPS questions of the moment. And if I can quote, you have said that these are whether we should persist with a mainstreaming agenda that seeks to compromise rather than have a revolution, and how we can pursue the mainstreaming of WPS without undertaking essential reforms. So I'd be grateful if you could kind of kick us off um, with with that in in addition to your thoughts on the uh, handbook.
1: So, Bella, would you mind if I just put that question aside and maybe just say a few things generally (laughs) about the handbook, and then maybe when we come back, after everybody has given their... Talked about their chapter, then sure. I can come. We can all come back to those sure, sure. kind of animating tensions and really difficult questions. Of course, <laughs> would you mind? Okay, so great. Shall, shall we use the lectern? Great. Uh, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, and I think I think I even have like a slide or two, don't I? Um, is Zoe here? Like, <laughs> okay. There's a picture, and we do we do have a. Um, Sorry, sorry to say that the, the Oxford uh, University Press publisher had some printing delays. Otherwise, we were hoping tonight to have um, copies, and I'm sure you're a little disappointed because you can't take away one of those big fat bricks with you. Um, but uh, we do have a mock-up version, which people could look through, um, and we can share that uh, in the reception after. Um, in any case, I have just a few... Uh, uh, Slides here just to give you a sense of the overall um, structure of the handbook. Um, First of all, I'd just like to say, you know, welcome everybody. It's so great to see so many people uh, uh, out tonight and as excited as we are about launching the Oxford Handbook on Women, Peace and Security. Can everybody hear me? Okay? Is that better? Um, Before I um, just make a few comments about the handbook, I just want to acknowledge um, my co-editor Sarah Davies from Griffith University in Australia. Um, Sarah couldn't be here tonight. It's a really long way to travel for a launch and fortunately I had another event on uh, earlier. Um, While I don't presume to speak on behalf of Sarah, um, I do want to say that this project it has been a deeply collaborative one um, and it's really been all the more enjoyable for it Um, and I also want to acknowledge um, our research assistants on the project, Dr Maria Tanyag uh, and Sarah Hewitt um, who provided impeccable support throughout the project and I'm sort of happy to say our editor at Oxford, Angela Schnapko, said that that this is the fastest handbook to be produced by Oxford from contract to submission so uh, didn't we all do well? Um, that's fantastic to know. So, um, I think that the, the inspiration for the handbook is kind of a deeply serious one. Um, we live in a world in which the scale and egregiousness of conflict and violence seems to be intensifying. Uh, And that conflict and violence has a really severe impact on the human rights of of women and girls. So that the more that we work on the Women, Peace and Security agenda, the more we learn about horrific gender-based crimes um, and about the remarkable political agency of women, um, as well as the resistance to their presence and voices in peace and security decision-making. So why did we decide to, to edit this uh, handbook on women, peace and security as scholars? So there, I think there are different ways that you can try to transform approaches to peace and security to make them less violent, Uh, to be more able to protect uh, human rights, including the human rights of women and girls, and to promote recovery from conflict. And we all have different roles to play Um, in changing the situation, and there are certainly different timeframes for those roles. So we know that averting emergencies and assisting women's human rights defenders today and tomorrow matters greatly, as does bringing women, uh, civil society leaders from conflict countries where often their voices are blocked, uh, bringing them to the Security Council to brief states. That's really important too. As scholars, though, we're not on the front lines. And this, obviously, you know, that's, uh, we are fortunate in that in some respect. But we can assist by building the knowledge and the evidence for women, peace, and security, by bringing researchers and practitioners together to share their expert knowledge and their knowledge based on experience to build a movement of theory and practice. So within that movement and within this handbook, we aim to collectively strategise about what works and what doesn't work to prevent violence, to protect civilians and to recover from conflict. So for us, the handbook provides an opportunity and a space to critically reflect on how to advance women's rights to security uh, and with the overall end of achieving feminist peace. And you might want to ask me what feminist piece is at the end, but I'm just going to leave that there uh, for now. Um, So, and I think that the handbook really also kind of uh, recognises, and the the chapters in it recognise that it, Has taken more than a century to generate recognition for women, peace and security, uh, to the extent that it has been recognised by institutions uh, to date, and it will take more than a village to actually spread and implement this agenda. So it's a huge undertaking, and I think the fact that this um, handbook—let me uh, just—67 chapters, over 93 authors. See if I have a, a little bit of an overview there, because it just wouldn't fit into a PowerPoint slide. Um, it's about six PowerPoint slides. So, uh, 67 chapters, over 93 authors, many of the, uh, many of the chapters uh, co authored by practitioners and researchers together. Um, it absolutely grew like Topsy, it is true. Um, larger than the, the Oxford Handbooks on International Relations and International Law. Um, and then, when you take together the other handbook that exists on gender and conflict, that's actually a, a massive stock of knowledge. Um, we're well on our way to spreading and implementing the agenda if we have this many people already contributing at this level. So, we've structured the, the handbook to uh, deliberately include an expansive cross section of voices, perspectives, and experiences. Um, And it's true that women, peace, and security has a really difficult task. On the one hand, it has to straddle vital local networks, um, often in in really precarious, difficult, conflict-affected situations where women are most likely to be present. But it also has to ensure representation and engagement at the international and national levels of practice in which elite men tend to dominate and somehow bring those together. And that's a really tough balancing act. Um, That is a a balancing act that we have tried to achieve um, in the authorship of, of this handbook. So our starting point in the handbook is the recognition that key tensions characterize and underlie the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And that these tensions do need to be and will need to be reflected on critically in an ongoing way. So I think uh, Bella referred to those tensions in her question to me and, and sort of asked me to resolve them, but I'm going to restate them again because I think they are really important tensions and they, and, and we simp- you know, they simply will not go away. They are, they, they are what characterise this agenda. So the tension is between challenging really patriarchal, normative frameworks um, and the unequal political economies that support existing peace and security institutions. Uh, That is what they look like. They are based on deep inequality and deep-seated patriarchy. So the agenda recognises that. And on the other hand, the agenda has to actively engage with the very institutions, these very patriarchal institutions, in order to try to transform gendered power relations that underlie Uh, especially militarised approaches to peace and security. So while Women, Peace and Security, if we trace it back a century, really has its roots in anti-war movements uh, and anti-war women's movements, anti-militarist movements, the agenda now promotes gender mainstreaming in militaries and peacekeeping operations. And that has given rise to the question of whether or not Women, Peace and Security now legitimises the use of violence. So I'm really happy to discuss that further because I think that's something that we all have something to say about. I want to highlight now just uh, in my final comments just five key insights that emerge from across those 67 chapters in the handbook that I think should give us cause for hope uh, for the future of women, peace and security. So first... um, I think uh, as you can see, especially by parts uh, three and four in the handbook, it's very clear that change uh, happens and does not only happen in the Security Council. So many chapters reflect on the relationship between security institutions and the Security Council and other frameworks such as the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And CEDAW recommendation 30 makes it clear that multiple institutions uh, have a a responsibility for bringing uh, gender equal security um, to the fore. So even though it's real progress that we have seen in recent years with women's civil society representatives briefing the Security Council, Um, we can also see change happening at all levels and across many institutions Um, and there are multiple dialogues and sites still to be engaged in. Uh, to realise security and peace. So one key thing, and I I think I speak from my own perspective because I co-authored the chapter on women, peace and security and international financial institutions, Um, but I would say here that the IMF and the World Bank and other economic multilateral institutions have key roles to play in women, peace and security and not merely in relief and recovery from conflict, but also in terms of Peace processes and conflict prevention, and actually bringing key civil society actors, women civil society actors, to the table when discussions are being made about the economic peace, about the investments in societies that will shape whether or not they continue to uh, to be engaged in violence and war, whether they are able to sustain peace. Second insight, I think, uh, is very hopeful um, and highlighted in a number of chapters in the handbook. Innovation does and can occur when local women and security practitioners engage in joint problem solving with institutional actors. Um, And there are some fantastic examples of this in the handbook. The ones that come to my mind are the women's firewood patrols in South Sudan where peacekeepers came together with local women uh, in in displacement camps, women's community policing, uh, assistance with grant writing for women's civil society organizations, Uh, and independent, non-government-controlled radio communication to rural areas that has been able to enable early warning of conflict and is led by women. So these are just a few examples, but they are hopeful examples, and I think that they um, recognise that ensuring the flexibility of frameworks so that women, peace and security strategies can respond to local situations is essential. Third uh, third uh, key insight that I want to highlight um, is around this risk that it is militaries and defence organisations that are taking up women, peace and security knowledge and lessons operationally, often more than are diplomatic bodies and development agencies. So... There is a paradox for sure, but defence investment in women, peace and security can be an opportunity and has been an opportunity to reform military practices, military agendas and military definitions of peace and security within a number of countries uh, and several regions. So in the handbook there are cases about NATO about Chinese peacekeeping, uh, about the Australian Defence Force, that actually highlight the positive change within defence culture uh, and practices as a result of the investment uh, and their priority uh, on women, peace and security. Fourth, fourth um, key positive uh, uh, issue that we can be hopeful about. Um, so. There is a paradox that is highlighted uh, across a number of chapters in the handbook, and that is about Uh, the resolutions on sexual violence in conflict, um, uh, the narrowness of some of those resolutions and and that particular protection agenda. Um, But the paradox is that that focus on protection against sexual violence and conflict has also enabled participation and in particular broader engagement by the Security Council on Women, Peace and Security. um, And Moreover, the uh, focus on, for example, conflict-related sexual violence data gathering, on implementation of protocols, on the treatment of victims uh, and evidence, on community programs to address stigma, these have all required participation from women as women protection advisers, as experts on women's legal testimony, in peace agreements, in peace building and in ministries outside defence and foreign affairs. So many of the chapters highlight the synergy and and the interconnection between protection and and participation as pillars of the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Fifth, and and the last um, kind of hopeful uh, insight from the handbook, Um, it's clear there are different entry points in different regions and that no one size fits all. Uh, for realising the Women, Peace and Security agenda in any given country or region. And that is as it should be. So even though we might have great relationships with uh, organisations like UN Women, which would like national action plans and have a certain idea for how they should look every country and region has a different priority. And we can see that in the volume with the focus in Asia being on establishing normative change in networks. In the Pacific, the development frame is intimately linked to the agenda, and that would be true also of Uh, some of the the African states. In South America, it is a human rights approach that is to the forefront uh, when addressing women, peace and security. But all of these approaches will change and adapt in the context of local women's empowerment, women's agendas and local conflict situations. So um, just my final comment, I think it's so important uh, in this agenda to learn from theory and practice and the possibility to have a community of theory and practice is incredible, um, and the experience of working on a handbook uh, across these communities has been also incredible. I would say you know that although you know it 's interesting whenever you edit such a large collection which I'm only probably going to do once in my lifetime um, You know, there will be tragic things happen to people and there have been a few of those things, but overall all contributors have been amazing, like there has been no difficult contributor, which I think says something about this community of theory and practice. Uh, We all often strive for simple lessons and I think in Women, Peace and Security we're often keen on infographics and we also quite like statistics. Um, because they seem to simplify our message and help us to influence policymakers who can then try to push for change. But who can ignore 900-plus pages, (laughs) even if you don't read them all? That's a brick. And even even though brevity might be valuable in some contexts, I also think in a complex and growing field like Women, Peace, and Security, having a brick is is pretty important. And taking stock of our collective knowledge, engaging in debate and dialogue about trade-offs and the ways forward, um, is something I'm very happy to have contributed to. Thanks so much, Professor True, for setting
0: the stage for us. Dr Hastrup
2: Uh, Welcome, everyone. And uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Jackie and Sarah for inviting me to contribute to this kind of -of one-of-a-kind volume, really. Um, It's truly been a pleasure working with them, and I'm glad to know that um, we did right by you by submitting everything we were supposed to submit on time. So for this handbook, I was asked to um, reflect on the African Union Um, which is one of my areas of interest. And, um, I felt that it was also an opportunity to, um, highlight the practices of feminists working within the African Union, but also to, um, draw attention to some of the knowledge that is being created on WPS outside of the global north. I think we can all be in agreement that the gender dynamics of security can no longer be ignored, and hence why this book is um, appropriate for now. um, Despite uh, the awareness of the Women, Peace, and Security agenda and the almost 20 years since the existence of UNCR 1325, um, Women um, and others are still marginalized, they are still vulnerable, they are silenced and often absent from the global practices of peace and security. And I believe that regional security institutions like the African Union have a role to play in uh, mitigating some of these challenges, especially given what I would consider to be an increasingly regionalized international order. So, the African Union, which was uh, created formally in 2001, um, has committed itself to gender equality in all aspects of its work and has um, committed to the strategy of gender mainstreaming. So, it's unsurprising really that the AU has also taken up the Women, Peace and Security agenda as a global framework through which um, it can realize uh, some of its own gender equal practices and security. Um, but I think despite the African Union taking this up, in the broader discourses on women, peace, and security, regional institutions as independent political actors has often been inglo- ignored, um, even among WPS practitioners. So in the book, what I argued for, or what I argued was that the discourses of women, peace, and security had to go beyond the national, i.e., the national action plans, and the global, so the United Nations, to look at the regional in order to sort of get a holistic picture of women, peace, and security. In the African case especially, I think that the African case should be seen as contributing to the women, peace, and security discourse itself rather than being seen as simply a uh, recipient or a receptor of WPS implementation. And in that way, the African Union, I see it as being co-constitutive of what the WPS is itself, So the African Union may be considered a regional site of practice for women, peace, and security, and the idea here is by naming the African Union as a regional site of practice, we are able to acknowledge the work of African Union actors, their prior and situated and ongoing knowledge that is derived from their everyday experiences on working with Africans and in the African Union context broadly defined. So in this particular chapter, and I do hope you get a chance to read it, what I try to do is I tell the story of Africa and the WPS agenda in the hope to underscore African agency and visibility within the Women, Peace, and Security agenda uh, and as an actor in its own right. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the African Union. As I said before, it was created in 2001. But it was a successor to a previous organization, Organization for African Unity, whose intent was to uh, implement a pan-Africanist agenda. Um, And I think it's appropriate here to say the African Union is not a model of the European Union. So in the chapter, what I really focus on is I look at the um, creation of the African peace and security architecture and how the women, peace and security has been situated within that. By doing this, I was also able to look at some of the um, sort of African indigenous uh, frameworks that have sort of grown in parallel to the women, peace and security agenda and how they sort of interact with each other. So, first, if we go back to 2002 when um, the protocol establishing the Peace and Security Council of the African Union was um, launched, one of the things that was highlighted there was the devastating effects of militarized violence on women, thereby underscoring the need for the sort of protection um, narrative that we've seen in the broader um, WPS discourses. But at the same time, African feminists and activists were working on uh, what I would consider to be regional domestic frameworks, one of which is known as the Maputo Protocol. So this is the protocol to the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, uh, on the rights of women in Africa. And to, to date, uh, this is considered one of the more innovative and progressive frameworks for African women. It covers um, issues around reproductive rights, but of course, for our purposes here, it also sort of covers issues relating to peace and security. So Article 10 in the Maputo Protocol emphasizes the right to peace, And the argument here is that women have a right to a peaceful existence and participation in political processes within the continent. Article 11 deals specifically with the protection of women during armed conflicts. So here we can again see um, parallels and linkages with the broader Security Council resolutions. Between 2004 and 2009, the African Union created a a series of um, implementation frameworks So you had the solemn declaration on gender equality, um, followed by the African Union's gender policy in 2009. But I would argue that the, perhaps the most important contribution of the African Union to, uh, the WPS landscape is the creation of the Office of the Special Envoy on, for the African Union. This office was created in 2014 by the former chairperson of the African Union, Dlamini, Zuma, who um, is uh, a well-known South African women's rights activist, and in her role or in her position back then in 2014, um, she did a lot to promote women's rights and she did a lot to bring or elevate the idea of women's rights and women's participation to um, the highest levels within the African Union. And by creating this office of the special envoy, which is an ambassadorial role in the um, chairperson's office, she did make women, peace, and security an important aspect of the everyday business of the African Union. Not the least because most of what the African Union does today has to do with um, peace and security, especially peace support operations. So by creating this office, I see it as a way of... Um, On the one hand, challenging uh, the dominant ways of looking at security within the African Union, which is still, uh, I would say, relatively militarized, but at the same time creating a position that is forced to engage with this women, peace, and security agenda. So since taking office, the Special Envoy um, has promoted direct engagement with women in conflict and post-conflict contexts. And the logic of her um, work has been that ordinary women's voices need to be heard at the regional level, even when they are not being heard at the national level. So, for example, this, in this role, uh, the special envoy, who is a Senegalese feminist activist, Binetta Diop, has facilitated the creation of a regional platform in the Sahel where um, activists can exchange best practices on issues around mediation, um, conflict transformation, but simply share their experiences of of how they have responded to both terrorism as well as the counterterrorism practices of their respective states. I think this is an important contribution in terms of engagement because it does create a space for learning between countries to, for example, help develop their own national action plans. But what is interesting, I think, from year to year is where the special envoy does go around the 54 countries on the continent is more recently she's done the same. She's done the same uh, with the Deputy Secretary General of the UN, Amina Mohammed. Um, as well as uh, the Chair of U.N. Women. And this Solidarity Missions, um, which I like to think of as uh, listening uh, missions, I think has really done a lot in promoting or highlighting what women's, African women's experiences are and what African women's experiences of, are of the WPS. But it has also served um, as a guide to... Um, institutionalizing institutionalized in women, peace, and security in the African Union. It has created two main initiatives. Um, one is the African Women's Leadership Network, which is a, an initiative that was um, created in conjunction with the UN that allows African women from the continent as well as in the diaspora to highlight their leadership skills, but to also, also create a space where they can share their leadership skills, This is particularly important on a continent where there aren't a lot of sort of formal women leaders, given that most heads of states are indeed men. Uh, The second initiative is known as FEMWISE, which is a network of women mediators, and it's aimed at self-professionalizing mediation, where women can take part in more active engagement of conflict transformation on the continent. So one could argue that these practices have been normalized within the African Union, this practices of participation um, have been normalized within the African Union and in that sense beyond simply committing to implementing something from um, the United Nations, African actors have to an extent leveraged the framework but also use localized frameworks to bolster the impact of the African Union in interpreting and effecting, effecting gender sensitive security on the continent. What I hoped to do with this chapter was to sort of showcase that although Africa still remains largely marginalized in um, international relations, both in theory and practice, by looking at the African Union, I was hoping to flip the script a little bit. And I think that whereas the discourses around global governance has rightly emphasized Africa's marginalization, I think they've also inadvertently um, reproduced Uh, narrow perceptions of Africa as simply recipients or as a recipient of this uh, Women, Peace and Security um, practice. But by engaging with the African Union as a site of practice and by looking at the actors that constitute this community of practice, both the special envoy, um, um, but as well as the former chairperson, the mediators uh, working with FEMWISE and so on, I hope I have been able to sort of challenge um, the persistent critique, which is often whether institutions are fulfilling their ambit within women, peace, and security or not, but rather show that the situation is a bit more complex and it's perhaps more useful to look at what institutions are actually doing to understand what WPS is. Thank you. Thank you so much.
3: Um, good evening, and thank you for coming, and uh, thank you as well from, from my side for um, Jackie and Sarah for doing this, ma- and, and Maria for doing this, going, take, taking us along on this massive journey, inviting us along on, on this journey of writing the book, and it's been a real uh, great experience it's also going to the author's workshop and, and, and learning so much from my colleagues working in this field. Um, and... Since I see a couple familiar faces in the audience, I'll also use the opportunity to thank a couple of people here who have been influencing uh, what I'll be talking about now uh, through their work. For example, Paul Kirby over there, uh, who has been doing a lot of thinking around masculinities in the space of women, peace, and security. Um, Hannah, who's been working on masculinities in peace building and what that means in peace building policy. Ico with her wonderful work on uh, gender trainings for the military. Chloe over there with her really interesting work around how and why certain types of masculinities are framed in certain ways in in the Security Council, and Yana, who then brought me in on a project that allowed uh, me to then try and test out some of these theories in, in looking at some of the research coming out of Nigeria and Indonesia at the local level. Um, So my chapter is on on masculinities in the uh, women, peace, and security agenda. Um, And it's a historical first for me, this chapter, um, and probably historical last. It was the first time ever that I managed to submit a draft ahead of time. So I I got an email from Jackie and from Sarah uh, asking for the abstract, and I panicked and I thought they wanted the whole chapter, so I (laughs) sent it when in advance. Um, But it's it's, it's a chapter where I try to look at... uh, kind of the, 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 one of the paradoxes of the Women Peace and Security Agenda or Gender Peace and Security Agenda, which is that um, men and boys, masculinities are, in a sense, everywhere as actors of peace and security, as soldiers, as guerrillas, as militias, as peacekeepers, um, as peace negotiators, as refugees, and so on. Um, But they are... uh, pretty much invisibilized in in the texts. And I I, I went through um, the Security Council resolutions, um, which then often use women and girls, women, gender um, interchangeably, but then occasionally do make mentions to men and boys. And uh, men and boys make an an explicit appearance in two cases in uh, Security Council Resolution 2106, well, you have this somewhat oblique reference to uh, men and boys also being affected by sexual and gender based violence, uh, which isn 't quite clear if they're brought in as direct victims and survivors or as indirect victims of, of survivors, but that was the first time um, that men and boys were mentioned um, and then in uh, security council resolution twenty two forty two men are brought in as partners for or potential partners uh, for uh, peace building and women 's participation. Um, and I think it's quite interesting there that, that in, in both cases when they do make an explicit uh, where there's an explicit reference and they have an explicit um, writing in of men and boys into the Security Council resolutions it's as potential victims and as potential partners whereas then sort of perpetration is um, I think probably more assumed rather than spelled out In the global study that looked at the implementation of the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda uh, over 15 years, which came out in 2015 from UN Women, it's only half the size of our book, so it's about 418 pages, I think. Um, Boys are mentioned five times when it comes to education. Um, Men and boys, once as potential combatants, uh, once as receiving more nutrition than women and girls, five times in the context of changing behavior, twice in the context of violent masculinities, twice in the context of militarized masculinities, and 13 times in this sentence, this mantra of men and women, boys and girls. Um, And those numbers are elevated by the fact that the way the report is structured, you have these summary sections in the report. So actually, the the number of mentions is only half of that. Um, And... LGBTI are mentioned twi- LGBT sorry the I is invisible there um, are mentioned twice in the report, so th- there's a lot there in how we approach the women peace and security agenda gender peace and security agenda that is missing in terms of looking at men and boys and masculinities um, and I think that this has sort of two uh, major impacts. Uh, one is the invisibilization of men's vulnerabilities and, and men as men and boys as potential victims in conflict and peace building. Um, the exception there is, as mentioned, so men and boys and sexual violence, sexual and gender-based violence, where there has been quite a bit of push from academics but also civil society organizations, people working on, on the ground with survivors, male sex, sexual violence survivors, to put that on the agenda. That has not been Uncontested there has been pushback there is pushback, but that is something that has been raised more and more but other forms of vulnerabilities for men and boys for example um, forced recruitment um, or the the um, the way in which a lot of refugee men uh, or IDP men have to resort to uh, transactional sex to commercial sex work to survive or the vulnerabilities of men who are placed in positions of being economic breadwinners uh, in very precarious situations and and facing exploitation, for example, as refugees, all of that is not brought into the agenda. On the other hand, this invisibilization of men and masculinities also means that men are uh, less off the hook as perpetrators, by and large. The two exceptions there would be men as these assumed perpetrators of sexual and gender-based violence, where it tends to be this, um, the the kind of the the imaginary, and and Chloe, you've you've done a whole lot more work on this, so I'll kind of paraphrase some some of the the things that you've you've raised in your work, um, that the imagined perpetrator is a man from the global south, um, and and that is where the sexual and gender-based violence happens, and that's where the interventions need to come from, from uh, global security actors. The other place where men are the assumed perpetrators, and it's again certain racialized men of a certain class, is as violent extremists, as mostly m- Muslim men, um, who are then uh, imagined as being the, the place and the site where the Women, Peace and Security agenda, global security actors, national security actors, need to intervene. Um, But apart from kind of these two broad um, sort of stereotypes, men as a whole as perpetrators of of violence are let off the hook, but also um, men as shaping the patriarchal power structures that uphold violence, that uphold conflict, that perpetrate conflict, um, even in the UN Security Council, which is a very masculine and male-dominated space. So that is invisibilized through um, not having men and boys and masculinities uh, in the, the Women, Peace, and Security agenda. And I think sort of the, the, kind of the, the bigger invisibilization uh, beyond just not men and boys being mentioned is that masculinity so the gendered ways of being men and boys, the gendered expectations of what it means to be a man in a given situation. That is usually not brought up in any kind of way. Um, and when it is brought up, it's, it's kind of seen as something that's very difficult to work with, uh, that somehow... Um, I, I, and because there is a, a renewed push, which I'll get to uh, in a moment, to talk more about masculinities in this space, that seems something that we, we don't know how to do, to do or deal with. Um, and it's also this invisibilization of men and masculinities and invisibilization of patriarchal power structures is a missed opportunity to, to better understand how and why conflict occurs, how and why conflict can be, or, or peace building can, can work better. And there is also a ma- major missed opportunity around seeing um, the variety of roles that men and boys, women and girls um, trans persons, uh, persons of other gender identities, play in peace and conflict situations, which are not clearly delineated always as victim-perpetrator, but are often a whole lot more complex. And there's also a tendency to then see in these documents, in in, in the policy, in the frameworks, women and girls as homogenous, men and boys as homogenous, and not going into the intersectional Vulnerabilities, but also power structures and, 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 and needs and positions and, of agency in these uh, settings that, that uh, the, the agenda is trying to work on. Um, but so, so the chapter that, that is in the book I, I wrote about, uh, I think it was about three years ago maybe, uh, and, and quite a bit has happened in that space, especially I would say over the past year where a number of international actors have started... Um, becoming more and more interested in bringing in men and boys into work on peace and security, into work on fragile and conflict-affected states. Um, And that has not been uncontroversial because a lot of the the ways in which this is being done is, again, quite gender-blind. There's this notion that this is something that's completely new, that we've never been working with men and boys before, whereas a lot of the work that is happening has happened, has explicitly been with men and boys, but their gender identities has, has been invisibilized. And I think just to um, close here, I think there, a part of the pushback on that has also come from feminist organizations, women's rights organizations, because um, there is a, a real risk there that men start taking up the space that women have fought for for a long time to have women, peace, and security, have gender on the agenda. And whereas then women often face a glass ceiling when they raise these issues, when somebody like me comes in, I'm put into a glass elevator and given access to the Justin Trudeau's of the world. Not that I've met him, but. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you.
4: Hi, good evening, everybody. Um, thank you, and I suppose just to start, to say thank you to uh, also to Jackie and Sarah um, for inviting me to be part of this volume. Um, I think the. No, as Jackie outlined, the number of authors and and where we all come from around the world and the different avenues of scholarship really is testament to where the Women, Peace, and Security agenda is today, and it's great to see that. I have to say, I haven't been involved in this for quite some time. Um, So before I start speaking about my uh, chapter, I need to just make a very brief note, which is to say that I'm not sure what's about to happen because tonight is the first time I've used my brain in the six months since my baby has been born. Um, So I did prepare some remarks I'm not sure what's going to happen, please bear with me, Um, because there's parts of my brain that just don't function anymore. So I'm I'm going to get there, I hope. Um, So I'm going to give you a flavor of what my chapter was about. I was asked by Jackie and Sarah to write a chapter called Pursuing Gender Security, Um, and for some reason I found this extremely challenging, and as I sat there tonight I realized my job title is Gender Insecurity, and I really should know what I'm talking about, (laughs) but tonight I have a good excuse at least. Yeah, so how do we pursue gender security? Um, And I sat down and I thought, how on earth am I going to figure this out? And certainly it's not a solo project, that's for sure. Um, This topic really, um, I think, pushes all of us to think, what do we mean by gendered security? And I kind of had to start there with going forward Um, and consider a central question of what may be meant by the idea of gendered security, but then, you know, what does that actually look like tangibly? And I certainly don't have any of the real answers here, but I'm going to just share with you um, some of my thoughts around that. When I started thinking about this, first of all, you have to think about those concepts, as I said. Um, For decades, we have had feminist scholars, very esteemed scholars and women's rights activists from around the world, um, challenging the idea of the security system and our system of international relations. And as Tony mentioned earlier, you know, showing and demonstrating that our systems are in fact gendered but of course as we all know and many of us in the room will have experienced the quest the, the idea that we have a gendered society or a gendered international system is still very much challenged and we still have this work ahead of us to try and show and demonstrate that yes it is in fact gendered um, despite all of this work that has been done. Um, one of the things that, that I, I tried to come to terms with to um, explain this or to think about this was to, to consider the idea of gender neutrality. There's a lot of, um, I think, suppositions and assumptions out there that our societies and our international ways of working are gender neutral. And in fact, um, I draw here on work from scholars such as Terrell Carver, whose work I love, and he's demonstrated that actually when we talk about something as being neutral, so our society, our international system, our security system, neutral is actually coded masculine by default or covertly speaking as such and that actually when when we pretend to say that we have a neutral basis a neutral field operation or a a security system or a dialogue a system of dialogue for example at the United Nations there really is very little um, I think traction with the idea that it's neutral that in fact as he argued the idea of the generic human or the normative standard on which we base all of our programs all of our policies they're covertly coded masculine and as he argued by stealth, this devalues the feminine. And so this is how we get rise to the exclusions and the bias and discriminations in our systems that um, affect women and girls um, disproportionately, which we've seen over time, and which gave rise to the Women, Peace and Security agenda in the first place. So we have a value here of bringing forward this gendered lens to the concept of security because it helps us see this and it helps us see the ways that our societies are gendered, masculine, feminine and and otherwise um, in different spaces and in different spheres. Um, And that we need to explore the, the, the concept of security by understanding that the neutral has a value that the neutral has a starting point that affects different people in different ways. And if we're going to pursue a gendered security, that we need to take cognizance of that value. So taking that as a starting point, um, we then want to consider, well, what about pursuing gender security going forward? How do we bring about a more fulsome understanding of security so um, that we then can have a more fulsome understanding um, of... operationalization, if you like, of um, security for um, people around the world affected by armed conflict. So to start thinking about going forward, I also had another pause, uh, which was, well, we need to look back and see where we've come from, because, of course, before myself or any of us here, there have been women um, and men around the world doing you know, mountains of work on trying to advance this idea of a gendered security. And we have a significant genealogy of work on which, to, you know, which provides us with a platform on which to build our work going forward. So in terms of that genealogy, I would say that, on the one hand, we've had some very key developments in pursuing a gendered security, and on the other hand, there's been quite a significant bit of contraction as well. And this speaks to some of the tensions that Bella brought up and Jackie mentioned, and this is another, um, I suppose, piece of the puzzle of the tensions that I want to raise here. So I'm going to speak a little bit first about the developments and then the contractions that we experience. In terms of developments, I looked right back to the beginning, uh, which Jackie, I think, referred to as well, and I found myself reading um, the declaration of the 1913 conference in The Hague just before World War I, where some very brave and innovative women gathered to call out those who were um, arming for World War I and issued a declaration calling for um, you know, the end to that war and the prevention of it in the first place. And if you read that, it's really quite a significant... Um, piece of work and it really does lay the platform for the resolutions that we have today. Um, It it was a precursor for what um, we have today and and how we think today about this and from that time um, of course post then World War II we had the United Nations established and the series of women's conferences which many of you will be familiar with, the adoption of the Beijing platform for action and of course CEDAW which Jackie mentioned all of which establish a very fulsome idea of women's rights, um, of the the idea of gender equality and non-discrimination, and setting up an entire, um, I suppose, international system that takes cognizance of those. We had then the... um, The arrival of the idea of human security in the 1990s, which gave, as some argue, the window for the Women, Peace and Security agenda to be adopted through the the Security Council. And then onto the Women, Peace and Security resolutions themselves. So significant work um, grounded in very fulsome ideas of rights, equality, etc. But then within that progress, we also had some of these contractions, which I'll speak about now. We have a large, um, I suppose, body of scholarship and practitioners, and I come from a, a kind of mixed background myself and I've experienced this, where we might talk about women's rights and gender, but then we engage with a system that is the gender neutral system coded masculine, which takes our ideas of women's rights and codes them again through that system. So even to the point where um, we have this concept of human security, but we still need to expose the gendered assumptions that underpin the idea of human security. That it's not just the generic human is not masculine, that there are all sorts of different kinds of humans which... Henry was talking about a little bit, and it's really important that we advance that idea, but of course our policy and our international actors often want nice sound bites, and it it gets sucked back to a more contracted idea of that. And of course what we have ended up with in some cases is a very reductive idea of gendered security, what works for the system rather than what works to advance a fulsome gendered security for um, people's lives around the world. And many of you will be familiar with the concept of instrumentality. So where, and, you know, Jackie referred to this, is the Women, Peace and Security um, agenda legitimising armed violence? Is the Women, Peace and Security agenda legitimising some of the decisions of the Security Council, which actually are causing much, much harm in people's lives around the world? Where our efforts to advance a gendered security become instrumental to the system, we tried out in the first place to try and dismantle, Right. Um, and so we have had much advancements going forward, but also a depoliticisation of those advancements as they enter the system. And this is a tension between these two, I think. So we're left again with the question, well, how do we pursue this now going forward if this is where we are at? And I think, you know, as we think about the idea of tensions, we need to think about productive tensions. What's productive in the tensions that come together? When, when ideas clash, when actors clash, when spaces come up against each other, what can be productive about that that we can use to bring forward? And I try to um, explore some of this in the chapter and... Um, yeah, there's so many ways we could go forward, and I certainly don't have all the answers. But here's some thoughts. Right, um, I had three things that I thought were important for us going forward from here, and, and, and Bella referred to you know the 2020 anniversary and onwards. The first is human rights that have kind of disappeared really um, in, in the last period. I think the idea of inclusivity and the idea of sustainable peace. So I'll just talk about those very briefly. Human rights, you know, that were the founding. Um, basis, I suppose, of the United Nations systems in in many ways, Um, and they experienced, you know, a a honeymoon period, if you like, up until the 1990s, and and now here we are with a world which is very much securitized, militarized, etc. How do we bring human rights back into this conversation on security and gendered security? important is, of course, CEDAW, which is a very strong international legal instrument that we have. Um, And in another chapter in the book, drafted by Catherine O'Rourke, which draws on our joint work on this, is this relationship between CEDAW and the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And so we have this wonderful opportunity, I think, going forward to have an advancing idea of gendered security and Women, Peace and Security grounded in what CEDAW offers us, which is the principle of non-discrimination and all of that, that that exposes to us, I think. Um, The second element, then, is this idea of inclusivity. Um, You know, I think one of the challenges we have, of course, is that you have a policy, and a policy needs to apply to a large group of people. So even take everyone in this room. One policy is not going to work for us all because we all have different lives. But, of course, policies have to work. And so they tend to take that broad brush approach less so than a response to the empirical reality of each individual's experience of the world if you like but I think we really do need to work harder to get the idea of gendered security and the agenda itself to respond more to the lived reality of those affected by armed conflict. And I think inclusivity is really, really important in this regard because we know and certainly I've witnessed women who are caught up in conflict and they know how to navigate these contexts, taking into account the acute sense of the value as well as the risk that's attributed to their own gender, ethnicity, religious affiliation, bodily ability, sexuality, etc. They are navigating this and those, um, the the opportunities that some of their identities give them, the discriminations that arise, the harms that arise because of those. And our policies and our overall idea of gender security is not quite caught up with that reality on the ground, if you like. Our policies are already, always behind the reality, right? So I think it's time that we really caught up on that. And it's really important that, for example, if we are doing operations or programming in specific countries, that... um, we deliver services, for example, to women who have mobility or disability issues, but that, that's a practical engagement and very important. But on the other end, the more strategic human rights um, agenda allows them also to have a voice and to have an impact and, and to determine um, how those policies impact their lives themselves. The third um, area then, of course, is going forward is sustainable development and sustainable peace, which is a new agenda of the international system um, that the Secretary General has tried to champion not something I'm wholly familiar with, but I think an element of that that I am interested in is the regime segregation that happens at the United Nations system. Development's done over there and security's done over here, right? So the General Assembly and the Security Council and never the twain shall meet. Um, And it's really quite difficult because if if we want to have a fulsome idea of security and gendered security, it's got to be grounded in ideas like the prevention of conflict, around international development. Um, And, you know, something that really struck me when Jackie was speaking was that idea of a feminist peace. I'm standing up here talking about security and starting there. What if we always started at peace? We'd have um, a much different world and a much different idea of what security would mean. So just to wrap up, um, I think just in conclusion, yeah, there's a real tension with some of these concepts, and as I've said, the, the starting point really does matter. And trying to get in a more fulsome, rights-based, inclusive approach going forward, I think will give us a, you know, a much more comprehensive idea of, of security and of gender, um, and I think really take this agenda forward going forward. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much to our four speakers. I think from that you have a little taste of the breadth Of the issues that are covered um, and also some of the depth of the nuances of the tensions that are covered through throughout the book Um, I'd now like us to turn to the question and answer session just to remind you that this event is being recorded um, just so that you're aware of that so if you could introduce yourself give your name and your affiliation if relevant we have our stewards um, in red and if anybody wants to speak, you could put your hand up. And I think we'll take questions in our usual three to four and then move on. And, of course, the more succinct and precise you are, the more people can ask questions. And so if you could avoid your kind of comments um, and overall commentary, that, that would be great. So who'd like to begin? Uh, the, lead, the person in the second row wearing the uh,
5: white, Louise. Louise. Yes, you. I thought Bella was going to say Louise. Hi. um, My name's Louise Arimatso. I'm actually with the um, Centre for Women, Peace and Security. First of all, thank you very much for, you know, a really um, variety of insightful um, presentations. I just have one really specific and brief question, primarily for Jackie, um, but I can open it up to everyone. You said feminist peace (laughs) and i would really be interested on your your views on or what you mean by feminist peace and expand on it please you did ask that right
0: (laughs) Uh, who would else like to ask a question
5: please the person wearing the purple Uh, Hello, my name is Ruth Jacobson, and um, I've been involved with this field for more years than I'd like to think of, Uh, and obviously I'm really pleased to be here and and hear about the the current work that's going on. Uh, My um, question is based on, I have to say it, on a long experience of looking at reports on the ground, evaluation studies and so on. And over those decades, the one thing that was really consistent was the dogged refusal of usually men, not always, to acknowledge that women knew about violent conflict, had knowledge. Um, The only way that this altered was uh, to a certain extent in instrumentality that yes, they could inform us because the guerrillas are moving in that direction. Now, from what I gather from Jacka's comments, and this is, as I say, very encouraging, this may have shifted, sorry, this may have shifted. And if so, I'd be really fascinated to know how, possibly, you know, any of the speakers have got their case studies, or is it still the ongoing battle? Thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Ruth. Anybody else? The person
6: wearing the blue in the back. Hello, my name is Hannah Lahn, and I work for the Tim Parry-Jonathan Ball Peace Foundation up in Warrington. I'd be interested to hear, perhaps from Tony, but also from anyone else, Um, I've had a little look into the UK's national action plan on women, peace and security, and it is completely international facing. Um, And from what I'm aware of, we don't have an internal national action plan. So how do we encourage, um, I I don't know about other Western countries, but how do we encourage certainly the UK to look more internally and not just see certain places, continents like Africa as receivers, but actually as ourselves as receivers of this as well? Thanks.
0: Thanks so much, Hannah. So if I can recap, we have the question from Louise um, to you, Jackie, how would you explain uh, a feminist piece? And from Ruth, we have to whoever would like to respond to this, the question of how are men, um, to what extent are men actually uh, agreeing or allowing or facilitating or understanding the role of women and women's understanding of violence? and Hannah's last question to Tony but I think others will also have some key, quest- key responses on how can we encourage the UK to be more internal focusing on um, 1325.
1: Okay. Shall, I, shall I perhaps go first? I might just ask answer Ruth's question before I come mm-hmm. to the the really tough one about <laughs> feminist peace. Um, I think it's a great question Ruth um, the extent to which women's knowledge about peace and security is recognised and appreciated. I think there is some progress but it comes back to Bella's initial question about um, the extent to which gender mainstreaming uh, is approached in such a way that it might actually undermine that transformation of peace and security, those essential reforms. To give a couple of examples, um, concrete ones, so I think that women have significant knowledge, obviously, how to build peace, in, especially at the community level and how to resolve many, many conflicts that can fuel larger conflicts. Um, and we can see this is acknowledged somewhat, but if we think about this, the huge challenges still in being able to... Uh, support, resource and fund women's civil society peacemaking around the world. I think there are there are real limitations on the extent to which that knowledge in the that knowledge which is coming from civil society is recognized adequately. What's really interesting and here I just speak to some research Um, of Nicole George's um, within a project which I participate in on the Solomon Islands. And what's really interesting there is that once women who have developed amazing conflict resolution skills at the community level start in the post-conflict period moving into the security sector, into community policing, into prisons, their capacities are recognized and appreciated but only once they are you know employed in the security sector, not when they are doing what they do uh, under the ambit of of, of uh, you know community peace movements or uh, civil society movements, so I think there 's a real tension there about the kind of work that women do because they do it as a commitment to their communities to help them survive and endure and be resilient, but the extent to which that that work is, is not supported, uh, is not adequately resourced or recognised when it is done essentially for love, for nothing. Um, and the other example I think um, speaks to, to this is what we have seen in militaries, the, 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 the need to understand women in the community and, their, and, and to engage with women in the community to get knowledge about threats Security about uh, you know about where uh, potential terrorists, for example, might be coming from about the movements of militia and so on, and we can see that with something like, for example, the UK and the United States and Australia, who have these female engagement teams, and the purpose of those engagement teams is to try to tap into women, tapping into other women's knowledge about peace and security. But of course, those initiatives, um, whilst effective within a military operation, are also profoundly instrumentalising women's knowledge and often put women at significant risk and harm. And, uh, and I think this is, is such a conundrum, and it's a bit larger conundrum, not just in the context of, for example, military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, but in this broader, broader uh, realm of counterterrorism and countering violent extremism where women's knowledge is now, I think, valued, but valued in a very narrow way such that it, doesn't, it, it may actually undermine Uh, women's peace building prevention uh, work. So I think, yeah, I think the tensions are rife there. There is some recognition um, for certain purposes, but not necessarily for that broader purpose of conflict and violence prevention. Feminist peace. Um, I, I think it's a great concept and I'm kind of a member of Women's International League for Peace and Freedom who kind of makes that their, you know, their, their broader slogan and, and recently they came out with a guide uh, for the Security Council members on, on how to uh, practice feminist peace. Uh, in that institution. Um, for me, ultimately, and I think, you know, like many feminists have said this again over a century, that peace is actually about the, re- re- the removal of harmful social hierarchies that pre- prevent people from meaningfully contributing. Uh, to their societies um, in, in a positive way and not simply um, you know, to end war or end violence. So feminist peace must be positive peace. It must be much more than the cessation of conflict. It must be about rebuilding societies in ways uh, that ensures that conflict and violence is prevented and, it, and that violence is not, is not a solution uh, to our, our collective uh, problems. Thank you, Tony.
2: Um, Great. Right. Uh, thank you for that question, Hannah. I should say the other Hannah is probably much more knowledgeable about uh, the UK National Action Plan. But one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, because in my other life I also think about the current dysfunction of the UK government, um, is uh, the extent to which the UK has um, now any sort of authority to tell anyone else um, what to do Um, but I think as as you alluded to I don't think that this is just a problem of the UK Um, I do think that there is genuine commitment on the part of some within the UK establishment to some of the values of the women peace and security agenda I do think it is problematic however that it's just externally facing but perhaps that's also pragmatic given that if it was internally facing nothing will be done about women, peace, and security. We know lots of um, legal aid routes for women locally has been closed. Um, we um, know that um, shelters have been closed. We know how austerity have, has affected um, women and um, sexual minorities in this country. So it might be pragmatic that they don't, they, you know, they don't want to look in the mirror. Um, but I also think, you know, potentially, perhaps WPS should not be looked at differently from any other way in which the United Kingdom sort of sees itself in the world and therefore views the other. Um, So I guess, you know, my question back to you is, you know, why should WPS be any different from anything else? Mm -hmm. And I think I wanted to pick up on Ruth's um, question as well. So that was a really good question. I mean, in... In the context of the African Union, one of the things I found interesting was the fact that the special envoy was going out to comfort communities, not through um, the military station there, but on her own with her team, to talk to women who were not affiliated with any NGO, were not affiliated with um, any sort of formalized uh, civil societies, um, probably expedited to an extent by... Members of the government, but you don't see as much interaction as you might um, expect. So, in that sense, I do think that there is an acknowledgement of women's local knowledge, especially in conflict situations. But I'm not, I think I would echo uh, Jackie that the uptake of that knowledge, I think, is still very limited. And that is why. Um, the attempt to institutionalize this knowledge through the Women's Leadership Network and, and feminize could potentially be um, useful if not co-opted again by those gender-neutral um, institutions. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Um, yeah, I guess so maybe I'll just comment a little bit on, on the question on the action plans. Um, and, you know, with it not, Tana, obviously, in her work around the UK action plan, um, You know. It's highly problematic that many of the states adopting plans um, are outward facing. And I think I first raised this back in 2009, particularly with the UK, which excludes Northern Ireland. So, you know, the UK has a peace agreement, but we have no conflict and, you know, just ignores the fact that that all of that is there. Um, And what we saw in the early days was the majority of the plans that were being adopted were adopted by um, Western states who have the money to do this, let's face it, right, and the resources to do it. Um, And then we saw a trend. To um, countries who were in conflict, starting to adopt plans, and they were basing their plans in, for example, the ministries of gender equality or women's affairs, whereas the ones in Western states are in um, departments of international, um, sorry, foreign affairs, outward looking. And so you have attention, um, I think, around where they're located as a country, but then um, where they're located within the government itself. And then certainly agree with um, what Tony said that. Um, what you also have at, at each domestic level is other plans like the National Plan on Gender Equality or the status of women speaking to Beijing. You have the whole process of reporting on CEDAW. These are all sliced up across different government departments, but we see that in many, many policy areas. Um, and you know, a joined-up approach obviously would work a lot better and have more impact inward and outward looking. Um, but many states who want to be part of the club, of, of ticking the box and looking good to be part of promoting Women, Peace and Security will do it in what I would call a selective way. This way works for us so we're going to do it this way. Um, and There is no system of accountability for planning or for implementation of the Women, Peace and Security resolutions per se which is why CEDAW and General Recommendation number no. 30 is so key because through that mechanism now we have a modality for the committee to ask states questions about their action plans. Do you have one? What does it look like? Have you Put money behind it, what's happening with it. And um, the UK has been questioned since 2008 in each of its um, audiences at the constructive dialogues at CEDAW on its action plan and on, for example, implementing women, peace, and security in Northern Ireland. And that's a very impactful space for that to happen. And I think, you know, plans will be plans, and I think trends will, you know, the, the plans have been somewhat changing. Um, there is an effort to try and join up between CEDAW and Women, Peace and Security, but a key opportunity for accounting for some of these gaps is in a modality like CEDAW, I think. Thanks
3: so much, Henry. Um, yes, yeah, so picking up on, on, on that point and, and something Tony, you mentioned there as well. Um, I think part of the reason for that external facing, or those external facing national action plans in the global north compared to the internal ones in the global south um, is I think also based on, on where Global North actors think that gender needs to be done yes. and on whom gender needs to be done. Um, so at the same time, as funding is cut in the UK for domestic violence shelters, um, FCO has its Preventing Sexual Violence and Conflict Initiative, where, of course, Northern Ireland is not an issue because there is no conflict, but it's, it's outward-looking at places like DRC, Syria... Um, South Sudan and DFID has its what works to prevent violence against women and girls, a massive global project which also looks externally at the same time with UK taxpayers' pay- money, while at the same time cuts are being made here. So there is that sense that that's why we need to do gender work, and the same goes for masculinities work. We need to change uh, Arab men's masculinities, we need to change Congolese men's masculinities. There's very little happening here around um, white middle class masculinities. Um, And and then, Ruth, just about your point there, um, I think there have definitely been advances, uh, especially in places where there is a uh, (laughs) vocal women's rights movement, like in Mm Colombia, where they then, uh, the the women's rights movement uh, took a very powerful, uh, or played quite a powerful role, and made sure that was also a a diverse role, that's not just women speaking with one voice but making sure that indigenous women, Afro-Colombian women are heard, but also that the LGBTI movement comes into the peace process and that's embedded into the peace process which then unfortunately also led to a backlash from more conservative parts of society. Um, but I think w- w- while there are these baby steps happening or, or in some cases like Colombia, massive steps, I think there is also real risk of then women being s- given a, a small space in around women's issues in peace. Um, and everything is a women's, woman's issue as much as everything is a man's issue, but there's is this notion that certain issues are women's issues. And women are then relegated to a peace building or civil society space and not allowed to enter the... Um, kind of the... the, the smoky rooms where men are talking about the real security issues, so to say, and women are often relegated to status as victims only, especially victims of sexual violence, and thereby then sidelined from peace processes, like in, in DRC or in Syria, where in, in the Syrian case, there is a women's advisory board who advises the UN special representative, but is not allowed, physically not allowed, to enter the room of the actual negotiations. So there are steps which are positive, but then also a lot of this um, kind of ghettoization of women's knowledge into these spaces where, where, where they're not allowed to influence directly these bigger processes or, or power dynamics.
0: Thanks so much. I think we have time for maybe one or two last questions. Please, the lady in the back with the gray. Hmm?
6: Uh, Hi, Uh, my name is Alison. I'm uh, I'm doing my PhD at SOAS. Uh, I have a question for Tony. Uh, I'm fascinated by your um, uh, comment about flipping the image of Africa being the recipient of WPS framework. Um, And in your speech, you mentioned a couple of times about pushing the boundaries, for example, like the politics of listening to local women, uh, and also about... Um, are going beyond the national level uh, and to look at more regional level. Um, but my question would be, um, in order to, push, to further push the boundary, and when we talk about politics of knowledge production, including practice and academic work, how far are we to have another Oxford or Cambridge handbook of women, peace and security in Africa and use UN framework as one chapter instead of having the handbook of UN... Framework, but Africa as one chapter, to flip the whole agenda around. And if that's an agenda, how can we accelerate that agenda to approach to achieve that final goal? Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Alison. Anybody else? Please, the person in the front row wearing the grey suit. Uh,
3: thank you very much. I just asked a question about... Um, Women in Peace. I don't know, you might probably all know if you just say something. A very remarkable woman, the first woman to win the Nobel Prize for Peace, Baroness Berdovon von Suttner, Countess Kinsky, who was a friend of Average Nobel himself, who found the Nobel Peace Prizes. And um, I would very much like to know if any of you know of her and any thoughts about her and um, the legacy of her and the issues which you've been discussed.
0: Sorry, could you repeat the name?
3: Baroness Berdovon von Suttner, Countess Kinsky. She wrote two books, Machines, out Di Baffanillo, Lay Down Your Arms, Times and the Machines. The first lady to win the Nobel Prize for Peace, a friend of average Nobel who founded the Nobel Peace Prizes.
0: Thanks so much. So we have two questions there, one directly to you, Tony, on how to flip the switch even more, no. how to have the AU at the centre and the UN as a peripheral. And we have this other question about Countess Kintinsky, if I've understood correctly. If anybody has any comments on on her, please.
2: Thank you, Alison, uh, for your Mm. question. Uh, I think it's a good question. So I I remember when we um, got the poster for this handbook, someone on Twitter asked, well, you know, where are the Africans, to which I said... I am African, that's by my name, I am, uh, working on um, Africa. I mean, I, I think there are two parts there. I, do, I think uh, part of what's been useful around WPS in Africa is this idea of solidarity, right? So I, and, and in that sense, to me personally, perhaps doesn't matter so much where... Um, the book happens because I think diaspora are also is sort of part of Africa in that sense. But I, yes, I would like a book <laughs> that was just dealing with um, Africa and um, African regionalism where the UN features there. But, but I also think the truth is there are those books, uh, those books exist. I know people who write in those books. So I guess there's a question for all of us here, right? I mean, and it's a question that's been happening in the, context, in the UK in the context of uh, decolonizing the curriculum, which I know a lot of people have um, taken up. You know, I think it's, it is collective, but it's also individual for us to be reflective about our practices. So it's not that that knowledge doesn't exist, but it's perhaps not as visible in the places that we, who are based here in the north, tend to go for our knowledge. And that's been one of the wonderful things about working in, well on this particular chapter, but in terms of the team in general, is, is being able to um, gain that knowledge, share that. And I think going back to what Jackie said earlier about how WPS area in general is a, is a wonderful, it's a community of theory um, and practice and um, perhaps in the future, (laughs) well, not just in the future, now, going into the future, um, part of the learning that will be taking place within that community of practice is uh, recentering those voices that have been marginalized in the context of knowledge production. In terms of acceleration, I I don't know. I mean, we probably need to overturn the global capitalist system. That's what I tell my students. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
5: Any other last
0: comments?
1: Maybe just say one thing, there's a wonderful chapter in the handbook um, by, and I'm just going to probably, due to jet lag, forget her name, but it's uh, the, the current uh, president of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom from Nigeria. Mm-hmm.
5: Madeline. Joy. Joy.
1: No, from Nigeria, Joy. Joy, Ann and and it's on Women, Peace, and Security and Transnational Networks. And the whole chapter is about Africa. And it's actually about the women's situation room, which emerged in Liberia around peace huts and was used in a particular context around election to prevent election violence. But how they've adopted it and taken it in different different African countries and have are now using it uh, in a conflict, you know, in a non election uh, context. Um, So that and and I think you know there, I mean, maybe just a another pitch for the handbook, (laughs) Um, is just that here we have knowledge by people who are profoundly engaged in advocacy and practice and policy making, not your typical scholars who would be in the Oxford handbook on the UN. Um, And I think that that is actually really significant to come back to Ruth's point about having women's (laughs) knowledge recognised as contributing significantly to peace and security uh, and the possibilities for peace and security. Um, and to the extent I, I would hope to see in the future many more such handbooks um, that could be produced on you know, really the different pillars of the agenda and, and the ways in which those are being taken up in different regions. Um, so this is not by any means the last word. And on that last word, I think we can
0: close this evening. Um, Thank you so much for um, attending this event. It's been great to have so many of you here and the questions that you've given. I also want to flag the next event, public event, that the Centre's organising. That's on Thursday, the 13th of December, when we're holding a panel discussion on gender and disarmament, women and weapons. And it launches a new project, which is a feminist International Law of Peace and Security, led by Professor Christine Chinkin, who's also with us. So you can get more information on that on the LSE website. As we mentioned at the beginning, there is a reception in the atrium, which is to the left of the theatre as you exit, and please do pick up your flyer if you didn't manage to do so. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I'd
4: also like to ask you to thank the panel members who spoke